Hola, Joshua Smizer de Leon here, founder and host of the Basel podcast. Thanks for listening to the show where we highlight stories by, from, and about the Puerto Rican community from La Isla to the diaspora. If you want to help us share the diverse and vibrant stories that make up the Puerto Rican communities here on Paseo, Boricua, and Chicago and around the world, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. Subscribing helps more people find the show and will help you make sure you never miss an episode. Leaving a five-star rating and showing some love in the comments helps too. You can also give a donation by looking up the Paseo podcast on savechicagomedia.org. Okay, that's enough from me. Enjoy the show. Bienvenidos. This is the Paseo Podcast. My name is Joshua Smizer de Leon, founder and host of the podcast. Thank you for listening or watching this wherever, whenever you are. Uh, we have JL Torres on the show. He's a Puerto Rican writer, educator, diaspora Rican. So JL Torres, welcome to the Paseo Podcast. Uh, what should our audience know about you? Well, first of all, thank you for having me on your, on your podcast. Uh, wow, you know, I'm 66, so there's a lot of life there that, that I can talk about, but to squeeze it into a, a couple, you know, like a minute. Um, basically, I'm a diaspora Rican. I, I'm, a, I'm a, a child of, of the Puerto Rican diaspora, and that pretty much defines everything I do. Uh, I've been a teacher, educator at the higher you know, education level for 40 years. I just retired. Uh, all that time, too, I've, well, a good portion of that, I've been a writer. I have four books. Uh, out uh, that deal with that diaspora Rican experience, but I'm also a husband for 34 years. Uh, I have two wonderful sons, and um, you know what I write about mostly is that that in betweenness of, of not really necessarily being feeling Puerto Rican or American, mm-hmm. and that's really what uh, what guides everything that I, I do creatively. Yeah. Really leaning into the saying, neither de aquí, neither de allá, like just right. kind of that in-betweenness. Um, and, and that's why I really uh, appreciated you or us connecting really for this episode, because uh, speaking of the four books you've written, one of them, your latest, Migrations, uh, mm-hmm. I actually have a copy right here uh, for people just <laughs> listening. I was reading through, I've been reading through some of these uh, short stories, and I definitely want to ask you about one in particular regarding Roberto Clemente, who I think is... The mm-hmm. best baseball player of all time in all of history. Um, you get all agreement on that, <laughs> right? Right. Um, but before before we get into my questions about that short story, um, tell us uh, uh, just about uh, the book Migrations. Give us a high level view. What can people expect when they read it? Well, I, I hope that they can find it enjoyable the stories. I've, that they can also it can be thought provoking uh, after they read the entire collection because the collection is thematically connected in many ways. It's historically bound to Puerto Rican events and moments that I felt were were not necessarily like big historic moments, but some nonetheless that had impact on, on Puerto Ricans. Uh, so I would hope that by the end, if you happen to be, I, I always believe I write for two audiences. One is, is, is the Puerto Rican audience, whether it's in Puerto Rican Island, or the diaspora Rican audience, uh, and also mainstream. So if you're mainstream, you don't really know much about Puerto Rico, I think you're gonna learn a lot more about Puerto Rico, uh, besides being beautiful and sort of a tourist attraction. Uh, and then for you know my people, I hope that they read it, first of all, and that they understand, at least from this particular Puerto Rican, you know, uh, my 
my sense of what things, are, you know, how things happen and why these things are important. All at the same time, you know, I'm dedicated to craft. So I'm hoping I'm writing good stories that people just, just read and enjoy. So. Well, speaking about stories that people read and enjoy, I really enjoyed uh, the, the story you had on Roberto Clemente. It's the, that part of your book, that chapter is um, Clemente Burning. Um, I would love for you to just shed a bit of light on why you chose to center a story on Clemente. Okay. Uh, well, first of all, I got to make very clear, and I don't think you know this, this please, Josh, but, but it's, it's, this is the beginning of a novella. That's what it is. Wow. And I, I started you know, writing it, the novella. And then I said, well, this, this first sort of part of it can be sort of a short story. And, and then I included it in the, in the collection. And for this also reason, if, ever, if I got published, people talk about it, I can say, this is a novella. So mm -hmm. down the line, people will look forward to the novella. So this is a novella that's sort of in the, in the primary process. And the part that you read really is at the moment that he dies, right? We all know that he died in a tragic accident flying humanitarian aid to Nicaragua, Managua. And so from that moment, uh, I want him to be going through this journey to finally, in my opinion, take us also a journey as Puerto Ricans, we Puerto Ricans, to, to through sort of an understanding about race issues when it comes to Puerto Rico. Because I think when it comes to Korean people, Puerto Ricans also, we have a different kind of racism. This is, this is what I'm exploring here. It's, it's a kind of racism that's, and I'm looking at this person and they're, they're as dark as they can be, but, you know, and, or, or I, you know, I, 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 I say I'm, I'm a person of color, you know, and I've had people, white people tell me, well, you're kind of, you're kind of light skin. I don't know, what do you, you know, mm -hmm. and even taking umbrage, like, <laughs> you think yeah. you're like, really? So I'm like, wow, um, if you were Caribbean and Puerto Rican, I don't think you would, find that hard to believe, but nonetheless, this issue with racism, who else is better to take us through that journey, a narrative journey than, than Clemente, who when he, as in the true story, right? Some of the black players says, dude, you, you're black. And he's like, well, I'm not black like you. And I can imagine that could be an insult to a black African-American uh, because well, you think you're not black, you know, but is he saying really on one part, that I'm not African-American, mm -hmm. but I don't think that he had the same kind of terminology, vernacular kind of language to deal with race that we have today, right? Mm -hmm. So in many ways, Clemente in that, issue, in that way, because he was living in 19, you know, 1970 when he died in 1960s and he was born you know, earlier, Puerto Ricans have a different kind of language to do with race that sort of deflects the racism, right? They sort of, it's very subtle and it's un negrito perfilao. That's what he was, you know, and kind of whitewashing people. It's, it's really, you know, it's really insipid, isn't it? And it's really bad. So this is what I'm exploring with this book, really our issues with racism. And hopefully by the end, as you know, in the story, he meets Alfonso Schomburg. So he, I have him meeting this person. I have a you know Roberto Clemente talking to Schomburg in the very first part of this, and he's going to go and speak to other Afro illustrious Afro Puerto Ricans along this journey as he's trying to feel and self-realization and figure out who he is as a black man, and that's really the core of that work that I'm working on. Let's talk a little bit about um, other stories in your book. Which one of the short stories in Migrations do you feel resonates with you the most? Oh, that's that's easy to answer yeah. honestly. Um, uh, it's the operation. Mm, without, okay. without a doubt, and, and for your, your listeners and viewers, 
this is a story uh, based on the sterilization program they had in Puerto Rico, um, sterilizing women from, I would say, well, probably the 1930s, really on. You know, probably it became a law really later on, and it went all the way into the to the 60s, late 60s, early 70s, uh, even with the colonial government. You know, even after Luis Marin. Uh, Munoz Marins was a governor, a Puerto Rican governor. They still had it. And, the, and the, it was really a eugenics sort of based program. You know, I mean, it has its roots in that. But the official word that, you know, we're trying to, you know, kind of curtail the overpopulation in Puerto Rico, you know, mm -hmm. as if somehow you're going to solve all the poverty, all the problems with that, right? But the problem was that many of these women had this operation done without real knowledge of what was going on. And that happens to Elena, the character in my story. She thinks that somehow they, they tied the tubes and they can't tie them. And eventually that will be the case, right? But back in 1950 something, when she had this, the story takes place in 1950s or so, um, that was not the case. And they weren't really upfront with her. And that's part of the, of the story. And the reason why it resonates with me is I did a lot of research for now, you're the story of the whole book because <laughs> a lot of the book is, is involved with a lot of history. Mm -hmm. And so I was reading this history on this, whatever, and then it just hit me. I mean, it was like a shock of, you know, like, my God, I, I think my mother went through this. Mm -hmm. That was what it, it hit me. And then, because I remember talking to her that she had an operation and it was done in an army base. Because she talked about the doctor who was also, uh, you know, a major, or he, she referred to him, el coronel so-and-so, you know, but, but he was also a medical doctor. And I think maybe as a younger, like maybe I was in my teens, early teens, whatever, I just asked him, mom, why come I don't have a brother and sister? I was the last one. And she said, well, you know, I, I had an operation, you know, whatever. And I'm like, but, but it could have been for something else, right? But, mm -hmm. and she never went into details and I never asked her. And she, you know, she passed away about five years, five years ago. And so that's, that just went with her, you know, I don't know now, no, but I'm reading all this stuff. I'm like, oh my, I did not know about this, this, to the extent I had heard about it, but I realized the extent of this, of this program. And at one point, some towns like Barcelona, that's about Barcelona, was, the, there was like 70%, that's a small town, but like 60, 70%, something ridiculously crazy of the women were sterilized. And I read also somewhere in my research, and I, I have to paraphrase this guy, you know, I, can't, I don't have the site right here, but uh, that the sterilization, that's, that program really sterilized, it was the highest levels of power, you know, sterilization of maybe in the world, you know, per, per capita of the women, the number of you know, people. Whatever. And it's just, it's just really st stunning that this, this could happen and people let it happen and thinking that it was serving some good without really, really educating the women. So it's really horrible. And that resonates with me for sure. No, definitely. Well, and just, uh, just the sterilization, the, the, the systematic intentional sterilization of women on La Isla. I think that's something that resonates with people to this day, even the conversations we have about mm -hmm. the medical system, um, you know, and vaccines, oh, yeah. you know, people, there's, you, you know, there's this natural hesitancy because, well, I trusted the medical system before. What could happen to me if I trusted now? And it just didn't do us any favors in the in the in the national discourse and discussion about uh, the medical system as a whole. But even like getting 
COVID vaccinations. Um, and, and I think oh. we're trending in a good direction in, in Puerto Rico is, is my understanding, yeah. but I do know there was a lot of conversation in Puerto Rico, Puerto Rican circles where this, the story of sterilization came up many times. Um, so right. just really, again, just kind of getting leaning into this distrust. Right. Uh, right. Absolutely. And I, rightly so, because, you know, we, we Puerto Ricans have been used as guinea pigs, let's face it. Right. And, and this is, this all comes down to one basic fact that we are colonized people. We've been colonized. We've been taken over. So what happens? So when the, you know, the testing, the first pill, where do they test it? They test it in Puerto Rico, Puerto Rican women, right? When, when they had the nuclear, the first nuclear reactor that was just a prototype, where do, where do they put it? They put it in close to Mayaguez. So, so imagine if that thing had blown up or, you know, it didn't work, you know? I mean, you know, I mean, Yak is, you know, I, I, keep, I keep saying this because you should, you know, it's this, Vieques is not this little island. Vieques is bigger, larger than Manhattan. Mm -hmm. Okay, just put that, you know? So imagine if two thirds of Manhattan were being bombed, okay? That, that was what's happened in Vieques. Two thirds of it was using as target practice by the Navy until, until Puerto Ricans just said, basta, yeah? You know, this is enough. We're not gonna put, you know, because a guard got killed. Yeah, and they're still, they're still cleaning up the beaches of Vieques. Yeah, there's still, uh, you know, still finding mines and abandoned uh, tanks. And, and how is it that, that that for all those years there was rebellion, there was resistance? I mean, the fishermen, particularly, destroying our way of life here. We, we're fishermen. We we depend on these waters. They wouldn't listen. And this is the power of a country like the U.S. to do whatever they want with us. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, until we decide this is you know, we're done with this crap. But um, you know, it's tough because with colonization comes a certain mindset that is very hard to break out of. And that's the first thing you gotta, you gotta break out of that mindset to be able to then say, you know what? You might be the biggest power in the world, but we have the right towards self-determination and we're gonna resist any way we can. I mean, obviously we can't take you militarily, but we definitely can do it in other ways if that's what the people choose to do. Because certainly there's some people that say, I don't wanna be with that. Yeah. A good portion, actually, unfortunately. Sad. Yeah. Well, you touch on a good you touch on a good point. I mean, Puerto Rico is the longest held colony in the world. I mean, it's that's been a colony of uh, the United States over 120 years strong. I mean, just going. That's right. Um, that's right. So, and you and I look just talking a bit about myself for a second. You know, growing up in our education system, maybe Puerto Rico got two pages in my textbook, and maybe that was around the Spanish American War and how America saved, quote unquote. Puerto Rico from the Spanish. Um, so it's just again, you're just passing, you're just passing oh, the country from one colony to the next. I mean, who's really saving who? Um, and um, you know, you think about how we talk about education now and how different states, how different state school boards will dictate what gets and what doesn't get in a history book. Um, I mean, just the whitewashing of our history uh, over the past decades, which is why I think like having authors like yourself on this show. Um, to as, and even just talking about different books that teach us about our history is so essential because that's just not something that's baked in to our education system here in the United States. So you have generations of Boricuas that are looking at their own history through one lens that's been told and shaped by a colonizing power as opposed to by us for us, which is, again, I'm really happy that we're getting into like the democratization of like writing, you know, like anybody can kind of like 
do the uh, research and give, give be given that platform and that space to talk about these important topics. But anyway, right. I don't want to sound like I'm blowing smoke, but you know, I, no, and, no, you know, I, I think you, these discussions are up, important. You know, this is a segue because, you know, by the way, you know, the, the questions that you provide, I, I, excellent questions, excellent questions. And, and to just go segue into that because you sort of touched on that. You know, uh, why write about like a book like this with history, you know, and, and about the diaspora, because a lot of people don't know about it. And that's, that's what motivates me to write about this. And I try to find information and, and kind of topics that I want to write about that have to do with, with us, our history, our experiences, so that there's a record. You know what I mean? I will never make a lot of money on my writing, but the books are there. And hopefully maybe down the line, some other Puerto Ricans will, will, will pick it up and go, oh, look, this guy was writing about this, you know, back then, because I'm not the voice <laughs> by any means of my people, but I am a voice. And that's what I try to do. I try to be a faithful voice to try to dig in into the into that experience and, and kind of put it, you know, in some some literary way so that the future generations, you know, your grandchildren, you know, great grandchildren can maybe read it uh, and, and and figure out this is what was going on with us, you know. Yeah. You know, you write this stuff hoping that, you, you know, your people will read it. And then sometimes you wonder if they even even know that exist, these books exist. Mm. Or they, are they reading it? Do they want to read it? Do they really want to know about these issues? I don't know. But I hope that they do. Yeah. Well, I mean, you've gotten, you've already received one award for the book. So, I mean, there, yeah, there's yeah. eyes on this. I mean, it's, yeah. and it's even on the cover here. I'm seeing the winner of the inaugural Thomas Rivera Prize. Can you right. tell us what that, what is that prize? Okay. Tell us a little bit about it. Well, yeah, that, that is um, Tomas Rivera, first of all, is not Puerto Rican, but Tomas Rivera was uh, a Chicano, a Mexican-American who, who, you know, his life was basically working as a migrant young at a young age mm -hmm. through then getting educated, becoming a professor of literature, and then becoming the first, I think was the first Latino uh, chancellor of uh, UC, University of California uh, campus, which is UC Riverside which was the co-sponsor of this prize, along with the Los Angeles you know, Review of Books. How fascinating that a writer from the East Coast, Puerto Ricans, wins this award, right? Uh, but you know, kudos to them that they basically say, this is a Latinx prize, right? We want to extend to, to other, other groups. Hey there. We want to take a moment to thank our partners, the Puerto Rican Cultural Center of Chicago and the Chicago Independent Media Alliance for their support. This show would not be possible without them. And shout out to our amazing podcast team. Learn more about them and the show by visiting our website, paseomedia.org. Enjoy the rest of the show. JL, I did want to like go back in time a little bit because um, you had mentioned after your formal education, you actually went to Puerto Rico to find your roots um, find and you know material for your writing. Uh, you know, again, you you really play around with this theme of in betweenness a lot. So really right. interested to hear from you. You know, what was that experience like? What did you do to find your roots? And you know, how did living in the United States and living in Puerto Rico influence the way you approach writing about in betweenness? Right. So right. it's a loaded question, but there's a, there's a lot there yeah. to yeah. unpack. But uh, you know, basically, um, I've lived one third of my life in Puerto Rico. I was born there. I, you know, my five and a half years old, something my mother took me to New York. I grew up in New York. You know, my formative years were there. And then I went back when maybe I was like 26 or so. Uh, I finished my MFA, not completely. I had to finish my, my you know, MFA, you know, a collection of stories I wrote. You know, I had to finish that. But I went there and I got a job there. 
and that started my teaching career. And then um, I stayed, and then I got married in, in 1986 or so. My wife is going to kill me. 1987. At the same time, I was, was going for my doctorate. Don't ever do that. Right? Don't ever do a doctorate and get married at the same time. That is, that is like really too much stress. So I have lived there a good portion of my life. And so what it has done is actually exacerbated really the feeling that I don't belong at either one. That's really what it done. I went back thinking, oh, I'm going to really settle. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to help my country be independent in a sovereign state. I'm going to, you know, I was PPO all the way and all this stuff. And, and then it just made me realize I don't, I don't belong here either. That's really what it was. And so out of that experience uh, came my novel, which is The Accidental Native, which is about the only book, really, uh, written in English or Spanish, you know, about uh, uh, reversal migration, Puerto Rican going back to the island, or New Rican going back to the island. And uh, that's another book. I mean, you know, I, where's the readers? I mean, why, why, why? that's the only book that actually delves into that issue of what it feels like to go back and go through that feeling of not really belonging because the character is, is, was even more similar than I am. I mean, <laughs> you know, his name is Rennie uh, and he is just Rene and he's just so, he's just way, way assimilated. And he comes back and, you know, if you, if you read the information of the book, you'll, you'll know why he came back. But um, that really, uh, you know, and I wrote that much later after I was 20, you know, 27, 28, but I, I kind of put my, try to put myself in place back then when I was 27, 20, going through all the stuff that I went to. It just made it clear to me that I, I'm in that hallway. Mm. I'm really stuck in the hallway between the two rooms and I can't seem to, whether I go into one room or the other, I always feel like I'm in the hallway. And I feel like that's really, really where I belong, you know? So, um, and what does that feel like is really a good question that I keep trying, I go over and over and over and over again and try to, and I will probably, that will be my main theme that keeps me, um, you know, going because we, we, we're not like typical immigrants. We don't leave the homeland and forget about it because the homeland is one plane away. And frankly, it's not really a home. I mean, it's a homeland, but it's not really a nation that, you know, it's like an open door. And so there's Puerto Ricans living here and it's, it's like a, it's amorphous is what it is. So I, I, I think that that's, um, that is really what, why it's such an important thing to me because I don't have an, I don't have all the answers. And for me, one of the reasons, and I tell my students this all the time, one of the reasons why we write is to answer questions for ourselves. Whether it's, you know, what really is my true identity? If I don't have an identity, is that a bad thing? Uh, does that mean that, you know, I, I'm not self-realized in any way? Or is there a piece missing that I will never get back? Or, and if, it, if it's true and I come to that conversation, what does that mean for me? Right? Uh, it's, you know, it's always a question or that, or what, what is Puerto Rican racism like? You know, which is my, the answer to the question I'm, a, I'm asking and I'm trying to answer to you know, to the Clemente burning book. Yeah. Uh, first of all, appreciate the transparency and the honesty in that response. Um, Cause I think, I think a lot of people can relate to that. Um, you know, I, just a quick story of my mother, I remember growing up and her telling me of, you know, she, she definitely fell into that category growing up her whole life. She'd live years in Puerto Rico, live years in Chicago, bounce back from the islands to the States a number of times. 
uh, which switched schools um, and mentioned, you know, going back to Puerto Rico after being in Chicago for, for a number of years, going to school there and being called a, a gringa. And you look at me, I'm more, I'm more light-skinned. I'm more light-skinned Boricua. Um, and that's really because my dad's, my dad's more light-skinned. Um, you know, you look at my mom, she looks like she could be Taino. I mean, she's like super, super dark. Um, um, you know, or at least has like African, you know, there's the African roots are a bit stronger. Um, so she, I, I just remember her kind of like telling these stories later in life, but the way she would articulate that experience, it felt as though she had just experienced it. Like it just sticks with you. I really, really this idea of being too Puerto Rican for the Americans, but too American for the Puerto Ricans. And you're yes. like in this weird limbo. Right. Um, and actually, I think this is a really good segue to my, my last question for you, because this, this very similar discussions were happening around the Tokyo Olympics with Jasmine Camacho Quinn winning, yes. bringing to Puerto Rico was that first, second or second ever gold medal, second yeah. ever gold medal. Like this is a huge, huge yeah. accomplishment. And yet uh, you see some of the chatter online uh, basically uh, calling her out and, and calling her Boricua card into into question because she wasn't born in La Isla or she doesn't speak Spanish mm. fluently. Um, mm. You know, why didn't she just represent the uh, United States? Is she really is she really truly Puerto Rican? As if there's this barometer, this meter that says, OK, you checked off all the boxes. You're officially Puerto Rican. She's off. Right. Awfully, uh, all, she's also uh, uh, has darker skin, too. So it goes to that yeah, point about that, that racism, that, right? Absolutely. Uh, the microaggressions, the covert ways that racism is expressed and seeps into uh, Puerto Rican culture. Again, not to say that that's exclusive to Puerto Rican culture, but it does exist to your point. It exists differently than it does here in the United States. So with people calling her out on, and questioning her Boricua card, I started, I really wanted to ask all of our guests that come on the show this season, you know, what does being Puerto Rican mean to them? So JL, I'm going to throw it back to you. And that's, a, again, that's another, I've been throwing loaded questions at you this whole interview, but that's another loaded one, you know, in your I don't opinion. know if we have enough time. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, you know, I'm like, I know, I'm, I'm trying to figure that out. Yeah, no, totally. I'm but, you know, in, in the but, best but, way, in the best way you can, you know, what, what does being Puerto Rican mean to you? I'll give a personal, you know, very personal. I mean, I, I think it, it's about confusion. It's, it's, about, it's about frustration and pain in many ways. It's about anger um, and, and, and not kind of pinpointing why do we have to live this way? Why is it that we live in this kind of amorphous state? And I know why, you know, little by little, because we're, we're colonialized people. But at the same time, uh, you, it's all those things I mentioned you're going to have to deal with. You're going to have to deal with the anger and the frustration, whatever, because really, where's the solution? The solution really, we know, lies in the hands of the people of power in, in Washington, D.C. And um, all we can do is agitate if we really want to solve this problem, you know? So uh, until we resolve that problem, we're going to continue dealing with these questions. It makes it harder to, you know, first of all, there's no such thing as one type of Puerto Rican. That is the most stupid, ignorant thing anybody can even say. Uh, there are many types of Puerto Ricans, just like there are many type of, you know, French people. I mean, it, 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 it doesn't, that this idea comes from a lot of people who live over there that have these complexes about being Puerto Rican themselves. And they themselves are so assimilated, they don't realize that they're assimilated. And then they try to throw it back at us like, oh, you're not, you know, it gives them a sort of a sense of superior, superiority, you know? Mm -hmm. 
And I'm and I'm thinking, see, I you the question you asked was, you know, because they might not speak English or Spanish, or they weren't born there. In my case, I speak Spanish fluently. <laughs> okay, yo no tengo ningún problema con el español. Right. I mean, I can read it. I had a major in Spanish. and whatever. So no problem there. And, and I was born there. OK, so I go back there and they still question. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. they, you know, um, you know, they call me when I went there when I was younger, they call me Pete Yankee. Mm. Little yeah. Yankee. Yep. So and I have a poem about that. See, <laughs> see that yeah. I, everything that happened, you know, I, I turned into something creative. But um, so I don't know if I. That's a long way to answer that question, but but um, it's just a very confusing state of being for me. Mm. That's really the way, the best way. Yeah. No, I, and I appreciate that. I think that's a that confusion. You know, I think that's a really that's a really real response. Um, I grow, and that's a big reason why, or one of the big reasons why we started this podcast was. You know, we're more than Puerto Ricans are just are more than just uh, great music, great food. Um, you know, Puerto Rican festival. We're not a monolith. You know, there's there's so much there's so much beauty um, in, in in who we are as a people. Um, and everybody's journey, at least on this show that we've interviewed, is so different and so unique. Um, and they bring so much beauty and skill and talent into the world. You know, it's just always interesting to see how people take that confusion and channel it and sit with it and try to explore it. Um, I think that's one of the, one of the more fascinating things about being, being Puerto Rican and being in a, the current state of our, our, our Island as it stands today. Right. right. Um, that's a nice summary. And, and really, I think we should really be much more you know, proud of, of who we are for a small nation. We have done great things. We have done really wonderful things. I want to give you some space to share with people how they can keep up with you beyond this episode. Uh, social media channels, website, you name it, whatever you got, throw it at us. What should we know? How do we stay up to date? My author page, which I constantly try to update and, 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 and uh, you know, kind of keep up to date is, uh, is jailtorreswriter.com. They can find me there. And I also have this blog that I really have to give more time to now. And you will find some of my ideas and thoughts and essays and things like that. I'm doing, I'm trying to do more reviews and, and sort of um, anything having to do sort of with that nexus between Latinx culture, but also Puerto Rican and also uh, politics, right? And literature, you know, the combination of all those things or, or really cultural production. Um, and, that, and that is called Post Barrio Universe. Puerto Rican writer, educator, and diasporican, J.O. Torres. Uh, thank you so much for being on the Paseo podcast today. It's been a pleasure, really. Thank you for having me on. All right, everybody, you know what time it is. It's time for Kim and I to break down the latest news in the Puerto Rico world. Um, admittedly, this week, kind of a light news week. Um, and that's not to say there wasn't a lot of stuff happening. Uh, there just don't so happen to be a couple news stories on our radar. So if there was uh, another news story that you feel we should have been talking about or in this segment that you'd like us to talk about in the future, definitely hit us up on our social media channels at Baseo Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. You can also go on our website, baseomedia.org. Um, again, any news stories are on the table. We just happened to just come across these two. Um, so uh, without further ado... Let's jump into this news. We talked about this last week, Kim, or last episode, I should say. But um, 
following up to our conversation on the workers' protests happening on happening in Puerto Rico, uh, there are workers that are protesting the fact that they haven't received raises in years, the fact that their pensions are getting reduced, or there is policy being uh, pushed through by the and supported by the fiscal control board that is essentially uh, capping. Uh, what people's pensions could be. Uh, so uh, all types of attacks against people's livelihoods and their potential uh, sustainability once they hit retirement. So in short, protests are still going on. They're multiplying. Uh, and this is becoming, according to the reports I've seen, or we I should say we've seen, um, has been one of the biggest challenges of God- Governor Pedro Pierluisi. Um, and he's only in his first term. I think it's good that they're continuing because I think people are realizing that words are just that. They're just words. And it just appears like he's just trying to get people to get off the streets. And how permanent are these things that he's promising when they're being supported financially through temporary funds? And I think people realize that This is not coming from a permanent place. Therefore, how can it be permanent? I mean, you have economists saying this, but you have people, just everyday people who understand that it's not realistic what he's promising because it's not coming from a permanent finance structure. And people are smarter than what he's giving them credit for. And that's why so many people are joining these protests. They're going so long. Um, And to say it's a light news week is a slight understatement because there's so much going on there that it's kind of taken away from, you know, everything else that could be going down on the island because a lot of people, yeah, a lot of people are involved in this. And, you know, now he's giving in to demands from firefighters and giving in to a lot of different opinions because he's realizing, okay, this is getting bigger and bigger. And I'm someone on his team has to be aware of the fact that people are starting to complain about the fact that this is coming from a temporary source. And um, you can't just throw money at things and think people will shut up. I think that's, I think you're exactly right. I think people see through this. It's like that saying, and I know you hate it when I use these like old timey sayings, but it's like putting lipstick on a pig. It's like that one. I understand. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it's like, uh, uh, people see through that stuff. It's like, okay, I'm going to give a, a temporary raise to teachers. I'm going to give, according to Al Jazeera, they reported that, um, uh, you know, the, the governor had said, yeah, it's a 30% raise for, for paramedics, uh, $500 monthly increase for firefighters. But like you said, Kim, all this is based off of federal funding. So what does this mean for the future once that federal funding runs out? Well, temporary federal funding. Temporary, keyword, right? Yeah. Temporary uh, federal funding. Um, Then there was this one quote um, that I found to be really um, a really good uh, snapshot of what people are experiencing. So Al Jazeera actually quoted a special education teacher in Gawas. Her name's Wanda Ramos. And uh, Wanda had said that her the pension she is going to get when she retires is being cut from two thousand four hundred dollars a month to nine hundred and sixty dollars a month. That's wild. I have a pension. And if someone did that to me capped my pension, I would be furious because no matter what I put in, no matter how long I work, no matter how many years I'm loyal to that company, for you to be like, yeah, but your loyalty is only worth a maximum of this amount. Doesn't, I mean, what's infuriating is that like you could work your entire career there 
and not get the entire value of that investment when that employer made a promise to you to invest for that amount of time. And now they're saying, well, we're not willing to do the work to put in the uh, financial planning necessary to make this what we promised you. Now we're taking away, as you mentioned earlier, we're taking away your retirement security. And like, this is what people work towards. You know, this is, you're supposed to be able to retire and not have to worry about money anymore because you thought you were making the right decisions along the way. And a lot of people get these jobs because of a pension or because of the retirement security. It's, this is, I think it's tragic what's happening to people when, especially people that are getting close to retirement. I can't imagine how, like, it's terrifying that must be to have it just taken from beneath you or taken from underneath you. How do you say that? Taken, taken have the rug, the rug pulled t- up. Have the rug. See, I don't even know why I have try the to use these pull, phrases. Had the rug pulled from underneath you. Yes, that one. Taken be, from beneath you. <laughs> this is pulled up from underneath you. <laughs> what? All right. This is going to be a new segment of the podcast. Does Kim know the old timey saying? <laughs> uh, again, I think you're exactly right. And there was, uh, to go back to the Al Jazeera article, um, this connects to your point from the sense of, you know, what, what, at what age is it okay to retire? Because you should not be uh, uh, working to, you should not be living to work. You should be working to live. So I think you're, I think you're spot on. I think we need to ask the question of what age is a fair retirement age? You got people putting in all this, all these years of work, all this labor, and you say, this is the retirement age. Then you're bumping it up on them. And not only are you bumping it up on them, but you're also, um, cutting back on what they would make in that retirement. Good example, um, the union leader for the firefighters in Puerto Rico, Jose uh, Tirado, he said that previously firefighters could retire at age 55 after 30 years of service with up to 75% of their salary. Keep that in mind, 75% of their salary. Now, the minimum retirement age has gone up three years. So instead of 55 years old, it's 58 years old to have to retire. And instead of getting 75% of their salary, they're only going to get 33% of their salary. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. When you said three years, I was like, okay, well, you know, things change. But Jesus Christ. Right. And and the base salary for a lot of these positions, like teachers, paramedics, firefighters, it's my understanding you're talking about you're talking about a base salary in the mid thousands, like 1500 a month. Maybe seventeen fifty a month, maybe two thousand a month. Like it's hovering around that range in base pay for a lot of these government workers. Well, I was seeing that a lot of public sector workers in Puerto Rico have two jobs, so they're not they're going out of their way to make sure that they have retirement security and that they can relax at a certain age. They're working their asses off, like this Al Jazeera article mentions. So it's not like they're just sitting around, you know, demanding money they don't deserve. They're killing themselves trying to make sure that there is something there when they retire. And even that promise is being taken from them. And I should back up a little bit because what I was seeing was 17, uh, 1725 looked like to look like it was the base salary for those types of government employees, like your teachers, your paramedics, your firefighters. So still, like I still, I was still technically correct, 1500 to $2,000 range, but the amount I'm seeing is like 1725, 1750 is that, is that base pay. 
Um, so you add that up, let's say you round that up to 2000, 2000 times 12 months, $2,000 a month times 12 months, you're talking about $24,000 for the year. I mean, you're talking poverty level. Um, and, uh, Bianca Graulo, I, I think I pronounced her last name, right? But she does a lot of really good reporting on social media, independent journalists. She shared this really heartbreaking story about a, a, a teacher, a public school teacher in Puerto Rico who worked not two jobs, but three. Apparently he was teaching. He had a two, he was offering tutoring and worked a security job. And he ended up dying in a car accident, driving home from that third job. I mean, that's, no one should have to be working that many hours. No one should be have to work one job and still struggle to make ends meet. And shame on the governor of Puerto Rico for trying to put a bandit on this thing instead of pushing for adequate policy. Hopefully that changes. Hopefully that changes. This last story comes from people, uh, people.com that is, not just other. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Comes from people I was talking to at the restaurant tonight after two margaritas. <laughs> Happy National Margarita Day, everybody. This last story comes from the fashion world. Sofia Hidal, 24-year-old model. She became Victoria's Secret's first model with Down syndrome. Uh, she actually announced it on her Instagram page. She said, one day I dreamed of it. I worked for it. And today it's a dream come true. I can finally tell you my big secret. I am Victoria's Secret's first model with Down syndrome. So Huge announcement, Victoria's Secret, no stranger to crit criticism on uh, how they represent beauty, how they lean into a very Eurocentric way uh, of looking at uh, what beauty is. So I think this is a step in the right direction. They're trying to really expand um, their, their, their brand, expand their roster of models so that there's adequate representation of all body types, of all realities of women. And she's joining the company with uh, 17 other women for a new underwear line and campaign called the Love Cloud Collection. Yeah, I don't think this hire is a, a break from Eurocentric beauty standards. However, it is nice to see uh, people outside of able-bodied people um, being represented. Yeah, I hope that this, I think that this is a step in the right direction. And it's it's nice to see her so excited. And so I don't know what part of Puerto Rico she's from, but um, it's really cool to see people from the island make it internationally and it's beautiful to see now um someone with down syndrome representing latinas as a whole i caught something you said there you, you feel like it's not a departure from um the eurocentric way of looking at beauty and i, I think you're you're absolutely right um you know you look at her she is um light skin light hair you know, very much in line, but um, and still a, a good step in the right direction. But hopefully this is a, a one of those moments where it's a door opening to even more representation that really shows the depth of our ourselves as people, as a, as a society and not just one specific um, what's a cookie cutter archetype. <laughs> I think this is a, a good step in the right direction. And she seems really sweet, too, from the interviews I've seen. Yeah. Congratulations, Sophia. Congratulations, Sophia. Can't wait to see what you do. This might be the first Victoria's Secret show I watch. I think they stopped those. They don't have them anymore? I think as of 2019, they stopped them. I could be wrong. I could be horribly wrong. People, if you're listening, let us know. Are the Victoria's Secret shows still happening? Should we be excited? 
for Sophia to walk the runway? Should they bring him back if they are canceled? Who knows? Let us know because, uh, I don't know, we're just not in the loop on those fashion shows. Oh, so they're bringing her on as a model like for advertising campaigns. I thought yeah. it was for the runway. Well, I mean, all the model, it's my understanding that the roster of models will get used in fashion shows because they'll have they'll have those brands on display. So if they were to keep doing Victoria's Secret fashion shows, she would make an appearance on the runway. Did they stop doing it only because of the pandemic? Or are you saying they canceled them permanently? That's why I don't know. I don't know if they canceled them permanently because of criticism or maybe the ratings or, or maybe there's another no, totally different I don't feel like the ratings reason. were... I'd have to look. I don't think the ratings were bad. Let's ask Google. Victoria's Secret ditched its angels in June, saying the concept was not culturally relevant. Oh, no more angels and no more show. Yeah, no more angels, no more show. They're trying to revamp what it means to present their brand to the world. So, Like, if you come back, you have to come back. Right. Like, you'd have to make a really big change in the way they run their show compared to like what rihanna's doing it's like a yeah you're right it's like an immersive experience to to a certain extent it's not just people walking up and down a runway and maybe you have a musician you know in the works like dancing around and singing around but rihanna is like it almost looks like a single shot that's taking you to like different environments and i mean it's it's a very cool show and the way they utilize the music i mean it's yeah, it's it's definitely up the game on what on how fashion is presented. Mm -hmm. So we'll see what Victoria's Secret does, and we'll see what Sophia's part in that is. Okay, like we said, not a lot of news that's been on our radar. But if there's something we should have talked about in this segment, hit us up on our social media channels. We'd love to hear from you. Before we wrap up, just want to shout out some listeners who listened to our last episode with Nina Vasquez on the Black Code. This one comes from at block block rock doc. That's a good name uh, on Twitter. Uh, this person on Twitter wrote that it was a great podcast featuring Nina Vasquez dropping knowledge on the history and legacy of the black code in Puerto Rico. My PR folks give it a listen. I uh, second that notion from at block rock doc. Definitely give that episode a listen. If you haven't, we take the deep dive on this policy that passed in the 19th century in Puerto Rico. Um, it's always important for us to talk about our history. Sometimes or I should say not sometimes, or 98% of the times our history is not portrayed accurately or it's not given the proper shine it deserves in our history books. So any opportunity we can take to, to go in the time machine and learn a bit about where we came from, policies that affected our people, I think it's always a good space to create. So definitely go give that a listen. Listen to the advice of at Block Rock Doc. Another feedback we got was from at Tiffy330. They wrote, good podcast. One of the questions to Nina was, what does it mean to be Puerto Rican? For me, it's love of the island, our culture, food, music, and family. It's not only one thing. And agree, speaking Spanish doesn't define being Puerto Rican. If you are, you just are. Mic drop. Great piece of listener feedback there. Thank you at Tiffy330. Totally agree. Speaking Spanish is not the main qualifier, nor should it be the main qualifier to determine whether or not you're Puerto Rican. So thank you for listening. Uh, shout out to, to both of those listeners for giving us their feedback. If you want to give us your feedback when you listen to any of our episodes, hit us up, baseomedia.org. You can shoot us an email, baseopodcast at gmail.com. You could also DM us on Twitter, add us on Twitter. Uh, Facebook, Instagram. I mean, reach out to us where you have the same handle across every social media channel. Thank goodness it worked out that way. 
Um, so it's super easy to get a hold of us. We'd love to hear from you. Before I forget, I was at DePaul University recently. I spoke to a class of entrepreneurs, and um, it's always great to be back at my alma mater, at our alma mater. Kim and I both graduated from DePaul University, and I met a couple of students that are participating in the National Bateman Case Study Competition. It's a pretty cool competition that public relations students participate in. They essentially work with the client around a particular issue and you know try to uh, develop a PR campaign around that particular issue. And these two students were working specifically around lymphoma, um, shared some really good information. Like, did you know that the Journal of Adolescent and Young Adult Oncology found that young Latino males affected by lymphoma scored higher in depressive symptoms post-diagnosis than other adolescents and young adults? And more generally, did you know that lymphoma accounts for nearly one in five cancer diagnoses among adolescents and young adults? That's a pretty high ratio. Obviously, there are high risk factors, so it's vital for Latino families to know the signs, symptoms, and mental health effects of a lymphoma diagnosis and, of course, where to seek support. So they shared some helpful social media handles for people that want to learn about more resources that the Lymphoma Research Foundation and the Paul Foundation have for adolescent and young adult lymphoma patients, survivors, caretakers, advocates, and loved ones, anyone that's interested in tapping into resources around lymphoma are more than welcome to follow at Erase Lymphoma DePaul on Instagram, at Erase Lymphoma on Facebook, and at Erase underscore lymphoma on Twitter. Again, uh, you can go there, learn more about the resources that are available to you to just raise your general awareness uh, figure out, you know, ways to seek support for um, the effects of learning about a lymphoma diagnosis. Uh, they're doing some, these students are doing some really good work to, to try and raise awareness. So if you or somebody you know could tap into these resources, uh, definitely uh, follow any one or all of those social media handles. In our next episode, we're either going to have a marine biologist on or an author who has written on the economic sovereignty of Puerto Rico, or what that would look like in practice. Who knows what it's going to be? It's going to be a surprise for, for you and I. So either way, it's going to be quality stuff. Till then, we'll see you in two weeks. Cuídate.